This is RPCC On Air. Welcome, welcome, welcome to RPCC On Air. Say it with me, Jeff. Remote. Special editions. This is the George Floyd episode. Um, and we'll be talking about everything that uh, led up to and what followed the, inc- the horrible incident in Minneapolis was George Floyd being murdered uh, by four ex-police officers. And on this episode, we are uh, wading into what's kind of the topic of our nation right now. Uh, we have all felt it in different ways. We have all seen the protests. We have all seen the riots. We have all, most of us have all seen the video. Um, but today, to kind of start this episode, we wanted to be able to talk to one of our leaders, um, uh, Chairman Rob Frost. So we have Chairman here for this special edition of Chairman's Corner. How are you doing, Chairman? I'm doing great, Colin. Jeff, good to see you both. Good to be with you on the podcast. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it's good to be with us, and, and we have a kind of a heavy topic to talk about today, but um, I'm confident in Chairman Frost's ability to be able to articulate some of the things that we're all feeling and help us kind of work through some of the thought processes that go into creating our decisions and uh, how we are actually verbal about this issue um, in conversations with not just Republicans, but individuals within the community. So Chairman Frost, I, I, I will open with, you know, the, the major question here, and I think the one that starts this conversation, um, what was your reaction after seeing the video of Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis? My reaction was, that's a murder. Uh, that can't be allowed to happen. And one of the first actions I took was to contact local police leaders who I work with to let them know that I know they are good at their jobs and they care about the people they protect and serve and that they needed to get out ahead of this because this was going to be bad, and, and rightly so. When you see what was done, uh, and I know there are certain procedures police will tell you about, but you had a, a suspect who was uh, under control, who was subdued, you had other officers around able to help, and yet uh, no one backed off, no one took uh, the, the actions that needed to be taken after, uh, the suspect was subdued to make sure that the suspect himself was protected. And that is part of the job our police officers are supposed to do. Um, And what we know now since that time is there really was no getting ahead of this uh, story. This was a a powder keg ready to go off. And and unfortunately, there are people who seize that opportunity of uh, the wrongful actions by certain members of the Minneapolis Police Department because they want to undo our entire system. And they've been now attacking the system, uh, not wanting to work for how do we work together to make sure that sort of thing stops happening? Because this is not the first time and we all know that. Yeah, I, I think um, just two points out of what you said um, that we want to make very clear here. Uh, you know, we know there are many, 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 many brave men and women who put on that badge every day and go out there trying to do the right things. Um, but there are some, and, and we won't even use the bad apple analogy uh, because that's been controversial in some points, but there are some who, you know, lack some of the skills or, or, you know, just don't acknowledge uh, some of their own internal biases they might take onto their job. Um, I, I just wanted to 
referenced uh, A.G. Barr's uh, letter that he wrote on June 4th, um, also identifying the Antifa, as you talked about, Chairman, and how some of these bad actors had come in and kind of hijacked a very, very, very um, relevant, relevant cause here. Uh, but A.G. Barr says, while the vast majority of police officers do their job bravely and righteously, it is undeniable that many African-Americans lack confidence in the American justice system. That must change. Our constitution mandates equal protection under the law and nothing less is accessible, acceptable. Um, I read that to you know, reiterate that to people that even from the highest office in the land, with that being part of President Trump's administration and the attorney general, they are able to acknowledge, if not in fact, but in reason that African-Americans seem to feel a different way um, when it comes to the criminal justice system. And I think it's important that we recognize that. We don't have to say that that's wrong. We don't have to say that that's right. But we do need to recognize that. And I love what he says there when he says this must change, um, because that's really what comes out of uh, the instance like with George Floyd, um, that going forward, we must find a way to have African-Americans have more faith in this justice system. Jeff, is there anything you want to add to that? Um, I would just kind of want to look at things and kind of take it to um, how the protests here in Cleveland actually went about and just kind of get a thoughts on that and everything of the sort. I know that um, it started off peaceful protests there. There's a lot of people that showed up. I know that Colin, yourself, and I knew a bunch of people that were down there. They said that it was perfectly fine. They were out there saying what they needed to say, being peaceful about everything. And then they saw groups of people that actually kind of came in and took advantage of the situation. I know that our windows here got broke. So kind of what were your thoughts of what happened within Cleveland? And then just the thought process of just everything and how people kind of took advantage of the situation. Sure. Yeah. For anybody listening who doesn't know, our, our front windows got uh, busted in by the rioters, the looters. These are not the peaceful protesters who wanted to be uh, heard on the day of those <clears throat> on the day of those protests. These are the, the people who want to undo our entire system. And that's something we, we need to recognize here. Um, so we'll come back to that a little bit. But what we were dealing with, just the very practical nature of it is uh, we've got a great landlord and great management here. And they were able to uh, help secure our office and the lobby of our building and the restaurant that's across the lobby from us. And most, most importantly, uh, protect the safety of the people who live in this building upstairs uh, from us. And so we're very grateful for those who were here. We're grateful for those police officers who were serving and, and for uh, the governor and the, uh, the National Guard that ultimately were able to restore order because our mayor let us down. Uh, our mayor, uh, you know, it's been said he's worried that his grandkids were among those who were uh, rioting. I don't know uh, if that's accurate or not, but uh, he certainly didn't take the action we needed. Uh, he was MIA, um, and he later apologized for that. And uh, I think it, it is an absolute disgrace, the lack of leadership we have uh, in the city of Cleveland. And uh, I think that all who have invested in this downtown, I mean, our damage was in the end relatively minor. And between our landlord and our own insurance company, uh, we're already back getting restored and able to be back there and back to work. But there are businesses that have been down, uh, invested in the rebirth of our downtown uh, with uh, you know millions of dollars aggregate 
uh, you know, combined that the different businesses have put in. Uh, and I can't imagine that some of them are going to want to stay or, or return. Uh, they are now effectively out of business currently, and we'll see what they're able to do. And that's the real shame of what happened here is that uh, this mayor, who was fortunate enough to be mayor uh, during a rebirth, but he didn't lead it. And he also didn't lead during this crisis. Uh, it's time for him to go. It's time for us to elect a new mayor in Cleveland. And that's something that we as the Republican Party have to be very much a part of the conversation of. Uh, here in 2020, as we look at this November and what we need to do, we have to be thinking forward to 2021 and the very difficult leadership decisions the city of Cleveland is going to need to be making. I think you make some great points there, Chairman, and where leadership is necessary from all ends, particularly uh, from City Hall. What I do want to ask a question about here, because I want you to be very clear about this, is um, what is more important because we this is the question that's asked with uh the destruction of property which we you know we don't agree with at all violent never agree with it's not something we do here at the party it's not something we appreciate but one of the things that was written on the windows of our property or our, our office was you should have listened sooner um and my biggest question is to you you know what's more important our windows or us getting to a point where we are recognizing the concerns of the community and listening to them and trying to work towards those solutions. Right, we've, we've got to be better at listening to this community, addressing the concerns of this community. That has to come first and foremost. It's more important than any property. Uh, the problem is there are people who are taking a message that can be noble. They're hijacking that message. An example, is the phrase black lives matter black lives do matter we have to be able to say that and we need to be able to take our own uh, you know control of of that particular message not to control it for other people control it for ourselves see we're the original black lives matter party the republican party it was a party that was founded to end end slavery in this country but there are those who want to tear down our very system and they were very devious. They were very, you know, very clever that they took a phrase that it would be uh, just unconscionable to disagree with. And they've co-opted that phrase and they've made that phrase hashtag Black Lives Matter into something that they use to mean something much different. They, um, they, they made it political. They, they have made that political. Um, and they're basically daring anyone, and not just the Republican Party, they're daring, uh, they have been over the last number of years, uh, some of the, uh, the institutional Democrats, some of the, you know, the, uh, the longtime old line Democrats, to whether they are able to say this phrase or not, because they've loaded that phrase now. Uh, in the same way, right. they've loaded that phrase, the, the people who graffitied, you should have listened, were on our on our building are not the same people who were down at public square uh and elsewhere in cleveland with that sentiment genuinely boy we wish the leaders in this state and in this city would have listened sooner because then we wouldn't need to be out here today so we've got to separate the message from the messenger sometimes and those who uh, want to see our system break down there are people who believe that capitalism uh, is just another form of slavery that because some people do well and other people don't, uh, because there are some who abuse the system, that that whole system has to be broken on down. I don't believe that. I believe there are abuses in our system. 
and I believe that our system it, in the, the American democracy experiment has been the best ever tried uh, and continues to get better with every generation with addressing the injustices that happen in the world. And we need to work with that system. It's one of the reasons why I bristle at the term systemic racism uh, when used to describe these incidents that have happened at the hands of police uh, of violence against African-Americans. And it, you can't deny that it has been repeated. These are not isolated incidents. But the word I would choose to use is pervasive, that there seems to be among some in positions of power, whether they're in police, whether they're in elected office, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, but there is still a pervasive uh, strain of racism in this country. And we better recognize that. Those of us who are white and who go about our days believing that we are not racist, that we do not behave in racist manner, that we do not treat people in a racist manner, we better recognize that there are people who look like us who do choose to go about and behave in a racist manner and do undertake racist actions. And we be, better be ready to stand with uh, those of every color, every race, every creed who are against that and who say that is not allowed in our system. It is not systemic racism, but we allow it to be per pervasive when we don't stand up to it. The wow, system, Jeremy, that was, that was, yeah. A, that was, yeah, like me and Jeff are looking at each other like, yeah, that's that, that's kind of right, man. That that's solid. Listen, I I, I have to tell you, um, you know, I, I appreciate your your words because you know I, I think the biggest thing that you know Republicans have trouble with is that they don't know any actual Black Lives Matters activists. They've never had the conversation with them, and because of my role engaging with them with different issues. Um, I've been able to meet them and actually talk to them. And they will tell you, we're not trying to do the violence thing. That's not, that, that ruins our message. And as you say, when people come in and they hijack the movement, um, we talk about Black Lives Matter as an organization. Yeah, they're giving money to Democratic candidates. Yeah, they're, they're, made, they're, they're definitely funded by George Soros, who we know wants to tear the country apart. Um, but that is, again, other people coming in and jacking and hijacking a very strong sentiment and again, they're attacking what we call systemic racism. But as you say, it's, it's pervasive racism uh, by those who are empowered in different positions. And again, that's not everyone, but it's very important that we as Republicans um, are okay with saying that because it doesn't make us wrong. It doesn't make us wrong. And, and, and the last thing I'll say about this, and I'll turn it over to the last question with Jeff, is that when people say Black Lives Matter, it doesn't mean that other lives do not matter or that Black Lives Matter are more important. At least that's not how the majority of people say it. We are just in a point in America where we have to verbally say it to reaffirm it, not only to ourselves, but for, so that other people understand that Black Lives do matter and it's okay. And it's okay and we, and we have to be comfortable with that because like you say, Chairman, the next generation is very comfortable saying that. And if we have any chance of reaching them, because I, I was at a gathering where I saw a bunch of teenagers um, out around, uh, you know, the George Floyd is, issue. And they said, no, when we turn 35, you know, we're running for president. We are going to be voting. We're going to be doing all these things. So in order for us to engage in that community, we have to be able to deal with these issues um, and not run away from them. Jeff, I'll let you have the last question of the segment.
So kind of speaking about the future and just like kind of looking at how we move forward with all of this, in your mind, why do you think it's important for Republicans to recognize the pains that the African-American community is having right now? And what do we have to do to reach that group? Sure. Well, a big part of what we need to do to reach that group, I believe we're already doing a question, uh, not really question. The fact is, it isn't enough. And that is we're working, uh, Jeff, you and I know, working daily with Colin, yep. uh, who heads up the, the effort in this party, but he can't be the only one. And so we're there, we're working with him each day. He's bringing people to the cause of what he leads as director of minority engagement for us. But we need more of that. We need more African-American Republicans who are willing to work with him and with us in that movement. We need more non-African-American Republicans, whether they're white, brown, you know, what, whatever their race is, who say, this is too important. That comes to the first part of your question. Why is it important? Well, the main reason it's important, I think you see from our governor, and yes, even from our president, both of whom are Republicans, that once they're elected, even if only half the state or half the country elected them, they are now the governor or the president for all of the people. And so if we expect to be able to get people elected uh, who people can have confidence in that they represent all of the people, then as a party, we need to be attuned to the concerns of all of the people. Now, just because we're attuned to the concerns doesn't mean we'll agree on the solutions. But exactly. if we can start on saying, here are the problems we all agree are problems in our community, in our city, in our state, in our country. We can agree on the problem. We're going to have a much better uh, success rate of working across the aisle, of working with a governor when a governor's a Republican or working with a governor when a governor's a Democrat to say, how do we, how do we find the solutions that we all can agree have a chance of working because we've at least agreed on what the problem is. A problem right now that we have, you know, Colin, you said it very well, was identified by Attorney General Barr. If we have, you know, a, a large percentage of this country that does not have faith and confidence in their leaders, whether that's leaders who is the policeman on the beat in their local community, or whether that leader is the president in the Oval Office in the White House, we are in danger of the system breaking down. And anybody who is going to work each day, who is trying to raise children, who wants to be able to send them to a safe school, who wants them to you know, have a better life, is not somebody who wants to see this system break down. They are somebody who says, how do we make work to make this system, which unfortunately at times is unjust, how do we improve it and make it better and provide more opportunity for all? That, that in a nutshell is what the Republican Party was founded on. We need to get back to that. We need to you know, be comfortable that we are the OG Black Lives Matter party. And uh, we need to be moving forward with that. Of, of we take back that message, not from the black community, but in terms of how we work with the black community that we aim to serve. Chairman, I, I'm excited because you just said OG. I've never heard that before, but that's awesome. I love it. Uh, listen, this, this, this is, you know, this is our chairman, people. And I want people to know, you know, and this is why I made you, this is why I had to say, Chairman, I need your voice on this. Because the things that you just broke down, the way you explained it, not only to outside people, because we know people outside the part listen to the podcast, but also internally, is very important. This is the kind of, you know, leadership on your, on your end that is going to keep moving the party forward. So um, I just, 
you know, I, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm, I'm elated with how eloquently you spoke about that. And um, I think, you know, if we can get the rest of the party on the same kind of motion, we'll, not only we'll get through this, but we'll get this, through this together, not only as a nation, as a state, as a party, and all those things uh, in between. So, I mean, Jeff, if you don't got anything else, I'm, I'm, I'm clean with closing this segment. All right, Jeff is giving me the thumbs up. So I'm good, yeah. There's a lot yeah. of good knowledge in there, so it's just for people to listen. That's all they need to start doing now. There you go. So uh, I guess that is how we'll end Chairman's Corner on RPCC on air. Say it with me, Jeff. Remote. 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 George Floyd episode. We'll be back after these commercials. This is Executive Director Jeff Grzewski reaching out to you to join the Republican Party's Executive Committee. For $100, you'll be able to get involved. This will include voting credentials for endorsements and platform, joining a subcommittee, and also membership pricing for all of our RPCC events. To join, please call 216-621-5415 or go to CuyahogaCountyGOP.com. This is RPCC On Air. And we're back for segment two of episode 13 of RPCC On Air, the George Floyd episode. Uh, As we talked about in the first segment, uh, there are a lot of misconceptions when it comes to African-Americans and Black Lives Matter and police brutality. Um, Particularly with this George Floyd incident, we've been forced to pay attention to these issues. Uh, And with that being said, it was important for us to bring in someone uh, from a legal background who understands not only the issue uh, personally, but also what some of the actual solutions can be. So with me, I have a former judge candidate, um, uh, a central committee person, and uh, a really good friend of all of us here at the RPCC, Lancherie Billingsley. Lancherie, how are you? I'm super. How are you, Colin? I'm good. I'm good. Well, I, as good as I can be doing. Um, you know, we've talked offline about how challenging these weeks have been, um, not only if you're an African-American, but if you're a Republican. Um, right. But just for the country as a whole, a lot of things have uh, been forced into our uh, 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 kind of sight of vision there. Right. Um, and, you know, with all that going on, it, it, it makes us question what are the real solutions? Um, you know, we understand that there is a community that is hurting that um, has a historical background in that hurting. Uh, for you personally, what did the George Floyd incident, uh, the feelings, what kind of feelings did it bring up? And what has your personal response been to it? So for me personally, um, you know, I'm a black woman. So by me being a black woman, I've seen and witnessed police brutality from afar and up close. And so, and that's been since high school, since freshman year of high school, I believe that was the first time I experienced and saw police brutality up close against a black person. And so Mm -hmm. it brought up very personal feelings because when I knew the video was out there. I forced myself to watch it. Mm. I forced myself to watch the entire 10 minute and three second video because I felt that it was important for me to see what 
what is going on? What are these concerns, right? Because you hear about it on social media, you see the snippets from people and you're hearing everything third party, third hand. And it's like, I really need to see what is going on. And so when I saw the video, the beginning of the video was, um, you know, uh, disturbing, but at the same time, it's like, ah, this happens, right? Ah, oh, man, another person right. and, you know, got caught up with the police and look at the police being mean to him. You know what I'm saying? Like, why they right. being so mean to that guy? You know, you hear him saying, let him, let the man breathe. Right. And this right. is what I right. was thinking, you know, per and then as the video went on, and as you saw, Mr. Floyd, even now I'm getting kind of emotional about it. So I'm going to, you know, hold it back. But as you saw, Mr. Floyd, stop fighting, stop talking, stop saying anything. And then you see the people like, hey, look, he's not breathing. Mm -hmm. Check his pulse, right? He, he's not doing anything. Hey, check him, check him. And rather than the police take switching from the role of protecting, right? Protecting everybody from this allegedly violent person or dangerous person being George Floyd, switching from the role of protecting people from him, switching to the role of serving him, right? Because it's protect and serve. So right. once he got to that point of not breathing, not responding, help him out, right? Get off of him and give him treatment right all officers are able to administer first aid right. right like they have that certification so i don't know if there was some you know minneapolis uh requirement that they could not i don't know um mm -hmm. but officers have that certification so my issues my main issues were one that the officers never transitioned their roles once they saw that there was a human being in need they didn't move to address that need. Mm. And my second issue was that those individuals recording. We have moved into a culture of observing. When things are wrong, we just watch. We observe. We get it on video for later on. We've moved out of being a culture of action. And so that disturbed me because I had to question myself, what would I have done in that situation, right? What would I have done if I saw a man dying before my eyes? And so that disturbed me and moved me. And so what I'm doing now, I don't wanna be in that position of watching as someone dies or watching as things just go horribly wrong, knowing I could have done something, anything. Right. It negatively impacted me financially, even if it negatively impacted my reputation, even if it negatively impacted some superficial thing that I place value in, maybe it would benefit someone else and the culture in general in a much better way if I do something. And so I've been, you know, galvanizing my friends, organizing my friends, right? Mm. Trying to find ways to give back. You know, like we talked about earlier, we're going to volunteer on Saturday. So sending that out to individuals who reached out to me because we all want to do something right now. We're all energized. We're all ready to work. But what are we working towards? What is our goal? And so that's why when you mentioned the Black Lives Matter and their 10 points, 
I was, when I saw those 10 points, I was like, those seem completely doable. Let's work toward that. And um, I think that, I think that, you know, your feeling is the feeling of most Americans that I want to do something. Um, I think that a big point now is, you know, what are the right things to do? What are things that we can actually do? Um, and I think that, you know, your background in particular uh, gives you a different light into it um, and to, you know, kind of vetting out solutions and seeing what's possible and also what's probable. And I think sometimes those two things aren't always the same. Um, You're correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff, so, I, uh, yeah so, so before, before we get to getting to the solutions, Jeff, um, you know, uh, this really isn't our, our segment. We're going to get to that in a moment. But I mean, what were, you, what were your feelings? Were they similar to Lingerie after you saw the video? Or was, I mean, was it more shock? Was, you know, what was it? It's, it, it's upsetting. It's um, one of those things to where you look at it and kind of like what Lingerie said is that we put people in place to protect us and they're supposed to be doing their job and following proper orders and going through correct ways of acting. And then you see someone mistreat someone and then keep mistreating them, even though that the community around them is stating to them, hey, this guy's struggling, come on, what are you doing? I think that first it, it's upsetting on the way the officer acted and then with him, there may not be a way to correct that. He may just be one of those bad apples that came through or just has some sort of thought process of just keep going. So then I kind of moved to the other officers. Why didn't they do anything? There's three other guys standing there that could have sat there, stopped him. Those would be the people that could actually do something peacefully to where no other problems would come up. I mean, maybe you get in trouble with your higher commander or something like that because you tackled the guy to get him off and someone else came over to help out. And then finally, like what Lanchery basically touched on is that people nowadays, social media is everywhere. Everyone records everything. Everyone looks at things. Everyone sits there and wants to have proof of what goes on. But where are those people that want to step in? And then if and when someone does step in, what do they do against a police officer? How do you not make this situation any worse? say someone does finally stop in to protect someone, what is going to happen to that person? So that's right. another thing that I kind of worried about. And I thought in my head through that process of if you were in that person's shoe and you actually did something to stop this police officer, what is actually going to help happen to you? And I just look at it as just being a human being, not even looking at it, what race the person would be or what ethnicity the person or whatever, like say it was just someone in general that just did it. What is going to happen to that person then? Right. Are they going to do something and say that you were assaulting an officer just because you were trying to protect someone's life? Like what, like it could just escalate into an even worse situation. So it's, there's just too many what ifs to it. And it's sad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, what you're kind of talking about is what type of protections uh, do we have from the people that are supposed to protect us? Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of, what kind of things do we know that they're being held to? Um, and that's where these legal solutions, legal policy changes come into play. So uh, we did, we know that Senator Scott, uh, Senator Tim Scott 
from uh, South Carolina is coming out with his own set of uh, kind of policy changes around police reform. But we do have um, a kind of snippet and a snapshot of what the Democrats came out of with the House. Uh, basically, their bill uh, requires had a require requirement of intent uh, for a federal criminal statute to prosecute police misconduct. Um, it also aims to implement structural reforms at the Justice Department by granting the Civil Rights Division subpoena power, which would basically give uh, DOJ the power to say, hey, I, I'm pretty sure this is a civil rights investigation or a civil rights problem. I want to investigate that further. Uh, it also moves to things around transparency. Um, one of the things that, Jeff, you were talking about there is, you know, if I'm a cop, what do I do if I see another cop doing something? Do I report them? Does the report automatically go through? And are people actually allowed to see that? Um, so that's one of the things they also are pushing, um, along with the racial bias training, uh, and also something that Rand Paul uh, actually in the Senate actually put up. You know, Democrats sometimes like to steal ideas, uh, but banning the no-knock warrant um, in drug cases which is similar to what ended up happening with another individual that we lost in the last couple of weeks with Breonna Taylor, excuse me, with Breonna Taylor, where, a, uh, where officers entered a home. Um, they were actually in the wrong home. They didn't knock. Um, they ended up uh, uh, killing Miss Taylor in her sleep um, while also apprehending her boyfriend who was actually a uh, licensed concealed carry uh, person when he shot at them. Defending so, his home. Defending yep. his home that, you know, the one thing that all Republicans agree with is that if you're defending your home, you're, you're able to do that. Absolutely. So those are some of the solutions that um, are coming out of kind of the legislative bodies. Um, from your perspective, Juan Cherie, I mean, are those kind of suggestions going far enough? Um, are they actually getting to the root of solving the problem? Or are we kind of missing the forest for the trees here? So for those legislative remedies that you just mentioned, those sound federal, right? So the thing is, is there is a, any federal regulations will be required on everyone, right? Mm -hmm. However, the federal government tries to stay out of local politics, local issues. And so mm. the federal government will not go too far into local issues unless there is um, an overarching need, which we saw in the consent decree between the Justice Department and the city of Cleveland, right? So there mm -hmm. was documented evidence of um, officers having a pattern and practice of using excessive force in the Cleveland Police Department. And so that was, and so the result of that was the consent decree, which in Cleveland, that's what we're under, that's what we've been under for years now right a long time and if you remember the beginnings of the consent decree it was a lot of talking a lot of meetings um it instituted a lot of different uh local options but i guess i really want to see more local enforcement of and regulation of our law enforcement right so, because the federal regulations will only go so far with, right go, go of, ahead Jeff. Touching on that and just throwing a question out there with um, the federal regulations being kind of broad, that leads me to believe that each local jurisdiction is going to be able to put into place kind of what they want, correct? In my mind, do you think that 
these local areas should have more of set rules that they need to follow too, straight across the board. Would that help out with things or are you fine with people's or local areas kind of figuring out and piecing together how they want to go about it? Because I could see it being both good in different ways to one, if you have local areas doing what they want and seeing something that works and then also providing the proper guidelines for local areas to follow that may not be as strict. So the, profession of law enforcement and police in general is a very unique hybrid of private and personal or excuse me public and private employment combining and coming together mm -hmm. i say that because most of our public servants are elected right mm -hmm. and so the way that you handle a public servant who is elected is you do what you don't vote for them next time, right? You put information out there against them, you get them out of office, you get them out of there. We don't want you serving us anymore. So you get them out of there, right? And there is a place for that, right? Mm -hmm. So that is one way to combat the issues that are prevalent as it relates to excessive use of force against black people by law enforcement officers. One way to affect that change is through elections. However, police officers are not elected as well as sheriffs in Cuyahoga County are not elected, as well as the chief of police in Cleveland is not elected. So those officers who work for the city of Cleveland work for just that, the city of Cleveland. And their boss is the chief of police, Calvin Williams, as well as the mayor of Cleveland. Frank Jackson. And so those individuals have some power, but that power is limited mm -hmm. by union contracts, right? Officers, um, I believe is nationwide, but definitely countywide. Mm -hmm. The police union is strong and that's where the private employment comes into play, right? And so that privatization of what needs to be done is what makes it difficult for certain bodies to require officers to do anything, right? So you can't require officers, right? So me, Joe Blow Citizen, I can't all of a sudden just require officers to wear body cameras, right? I can't do that. I don't have the power to do that. And there may be something in their union contract that prohibits even the city from doing that because it's a contract, which means the city agree to those terms, which mm -hmm. means the officers agree to that term. So when you talk about officers and their employment and what dictates it, it's really that union contract. So how do you affect the contract, right? That's a huge, huge issue. And that's why you hear so much about the union contracts because the only parties that come to the table in those union contracts are the interested parties, which are the officers, right? Who don't want too much legislation. They don't want um, too many restrictions on what they can do because they want to be able to do their job, right? And we want them to do their job. And then right, you have right. that city's mayor or you have that city's, uh, you know, leader, chief of police or whoever it is that is on the other side of that contract. And they don't want to anger those people who are out there on the front lines, giving their lives every day. So you frequently come to an agreement. It's not a big kerfuffle, right? It's not like the teacher contracts where, you know, everyone hears about it, right? The yeah. negotiations are all over the news. It doesn't go like that, right? The police pretty much come to the table, what they want, it's pretty much what they get. And so the way around that, due to the fact that that 
negotiation is so private. It's so, um, I don't want to say secret, but it's not really anything the public can effectuate, especially at mm. this time with Mayor Jackson saying that he won't make any statements about it, right? So we don't even know where Mayor Jackson's head is right now on this issue. You legislate against it, right? One thing, one construction, one rule of contracts is that you cannot contract for something that is illegal. Mm. So if something is illegal, you can contract against it. Mm -hmm. And so that is why you hear so much people talking about the contracts and people talking about legislation, because those are really the two ways to kind of zero in on the issue of fixing the issues in police departments. How will 2020 census data be used? Where there are more people, there are more needs for public services. That's why the census is used by the government to inform funding decisions each year. But that's not all. It's also used by nonprofits to inform services, by businesses to create jobs, and even by students for school projects. Understanding how the population changes helps us shape communities across the country for the better. Shape your future. Start here. Visit 2020census.gov. This is RPCC On Air. So, Vaughn, uh, Sharif, you know, you, you bring up a great point about uh, unions and police officers um, and how they interact with each other and how they influence one another. Uh, I had a conversation with another lawyer uh, within the party who talked about um, incentivizing training and allowing that to be measured as a metric to help you progress as a police officer. So, you know, rather than making it a legislative, making it punitive, but making it an incentive-based system that can, you know, take you from being on the beat to maybe a detective in, in a fewer amount of years. What, what do you think of that kind of idea? And do you think that would change the way that police officers um, either, and not to say they're not educated, but educate themselves like, much like lawyers do, you know? Uh, you got that to have continued education and things of that nature. Do you think of that as a possible, uh, partial solution to the problem we're seeing right now it's a possible solution because it sounds like that's a solution that we're going to the contract right so it's a possible solution if the officers agree that it's a solution mm. right so yeah. if they want to connect their promotion potential to um, participating in classes that potentially in their mind think they think have nothing to do with their job of policing that that may be a barrier, right? Because in the contract, the officers will not agree to anything that they think will detract from them doing their job. I understand. I understand. So, so there's a mind shift that has to happen. And so um, I don't know what will bring about that mind shift. I don't know if that mind shift has already happened, right? I have no idea. I don't know when the next union contract negotiation is for Cleveland or any other place. Um, but I believe that the, as it relates to their contract, it's something that has to be, there has to be a consensus and an agreement amongst those individuals. I think that's a good point to bring up. Um, just as much as we're talking about legislation now, the Democrats are coming out with theirs, the Republicans are coming out with theirs. First of all, it's on the federal level, um, um, but even keeping it more locally, those contracts can sometimes have just as much effect 
as legislation can have, if not more. So that's a really good point to bring up. Um, and I think if you are really concerned about reforming police, reforming policing and, um, you know, making sure officers have the, all the right training they need to do their job correctly, because a lot of them do want to do their job correctly, but maybe they had to, don't have the same amount of training that they would need to um, do that. So again, very much like lawyers who are public servants, they have continued education to continue to get better. Um, Absolutely. So moving on from kind of legislative bodies, uh, let's talk about uh, activists, groups, movements, um, Black Lives Matters, Cleveland in particular, um, and you talk about locally. Now, Black Lives Matter Cleveland is a unique, a unique group because they have Tamir Rice, um, they have the uh, 147 shots, um, and just as recent as two weeks ago, they're not. I was I saying said, Timothy Russell and Melissa Williams. Yeah, <laughs> Timothy Russell, right, right, right. You gotta say his name. And then lastly, um, even just as, as far as two weeks ago, we have Desmond Franklin, who was a young man who was um, uh, uh, allegedly shot by an undercover officer um, without, pro without any cause. So Black Lives Matter in Cleveland have a very unique situation in that things continue to happen in Cleveland. Um, and, you know, they are very well connected as far as talking to the Cleveland Municipal Bar. Um, I know that they recently had a town hall at the City Club. So these aren't your, these aren't your anarchist people at all. Right. These individuals are more about uh, finding true reform. Um, you know, Black Lives Matter, as, we, as even the president said, you know, in Cleveland, and this is what I've heard from them in particular, they weren't the ones starting those uh, right. dust-ups downtown. That, that was not their intent. They were there to peacefully protest to right. get to their agenda. So right. with all that said, Black Lives Matter Cleveland came out with a 10-point agenda. Um, and I know you referenced it earlier in the episode, uh, but if, if you could just pick two or three points out of the 10-point agenda that you really like, that you think are actually things that we can get done um, in Cuyahoga County that we can all rally around and support. Yes, absolutely. So, um, first of all, the thing that sticks out most to me, and I and I have heard this not only from the Black Lives Matter list, um, but from numerous attorneys as well as community members, is a tracking system of police misconduct. Mm. So, um, right now. If you wanted to, Colin, you can look me up on the Cuyahoga County Clerk of Courts website. You can see if I've got any felonies. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Which I don't. I don't. Just, just to be clear. Okay. I, I, I didn't know that. So, all right. Yes. And you can, that information is publicly available. It's all right? public records. It's all public record. All you have to do is know where to go to access the information. Mm -hmm. If you want to know if I'm married, that's public record. If you want to know if um, a lien has been placed against my house, that's public record. If you want to know how many times I've been sued, that is public record. It's all public record. So us as citizens in the citizenry, we agree with this idea of transparency because mm. this, this idea of being able to look me up and give my information is true across the nation, especially here in Cuyahoga County and especially here in Ohio. Um, and so additionally, at some point, the treasurer even made public servants' salaries 
public record, right? Yeah, so you open go to, yeah. Josh Mandel. Yes, yep. you know, you, so you can look that up as well. So there's all kinds of information that's publicly available right here at our fingertips. But what is not available right here at our fingertips is the information on the officers who are employed to serve us. Hmm. And so the tracking system for misconduct, I think, is crucial. It's crucial. It's crucial not only for me as a member of the public, where when I'm being pulled over by an officer and he's got my license and he's checking, I should be able to look at his name. And while he's looking me up, let me look him up. Right. Let me see how many um, use of force cases you've had in the last five years. Let me see if you have a problem with getting drunk on the job and then going out and doing things that are inappropriate. I should be able to see that. Right. My and, tax and, dollars are paying your salary. Go ahead. Kyle. And, and I would think that, you know, uh, the good officers, the stand up officers would be just as proud to show that same record. So I, I, I want to take it from being such a negative tone that, you know, oh, we're looking for something. No, more, more than anything, we want to be able to say, hey, you're a really good officer. You, you are serving this community in the right way. Um, and you are keeping things in line and, and, and really doing your job as a public servant. So, I, you know, a tracking system and you talk about transparency. Republicans love transparency. That's, yes, we that's, do. That's one of our things. <laughs> yeah. We don't want to know exactly what you're doing with our tax dollars. Um, and I think when an officer's on the job, he is doing something with our tax dollars. So it would follow that we should be in favor of that. What's as another? well as one other aspect where it helps is not only do we want this information to public to the uh, information available to the public, we want this information available to other police departments when making hiring decisions. Mm. When you or I go out for a job they do background checks on us, right? Any, any job worth its salt will do some kind of background check. And similarly, a background check happens for police officers. However, as it relates to some of those issues that happen pursuant to, once again, their union, union contract, the law enforcement agency cannot communicate that information to the next law enforcement agency. So now you have two police departments that, that, where the communication is completely broken right? They have no idea that this officer had a problem. And so I, you know, just wanted to point that out as well, that this will also be a benefit to other police departments so that they can properly vet the individuals that they want to hire. Okay. Uh, are there uh, one or two more that you really liked out of uh, the Black Lives Matters agenda that, again, that something that things that we can all get behind? Um, I also think that the psychiatric evaluations, and just to kind of conflate the two, psychiatric evaluations and the mandatory drug and alcohol testing after misconduct. I believe that the alcohol and drug testing, I don't know about you, but I absolutely want to know anytime somebody who is serving me is high or drunk on the job, I think that that is you know, vital to whether they're able to perform their job correctly. And as it relates to the psychiatric evaluations, I'm not saying that the results of that psychiatric ev evaluation need to be made public, but someone should be looking at their mental state. Just like right now, I'm not okay, right? After what's been going on. Right now, Colin, you're not okay after what's been going on. Potentially, Jeff, you're not okay after what's been going on. So it only stands to reason that there are some officers that are not okay. 
So why not have a time, an evaluation, a time when they can speak with someone about those issues that they're having and make and it support for officers and the support for officers as well. Yeah. You know, I think that's, that, that, that's another thing that could come out of it as well as protecting the public. You're also able to protect the officers. Yes. Um, and just in general, too, just looking at psychiatric evaluations is that your mental health state, it's been huge in the past yeah. year. We've seen the movement for it, and it's something that no matter what, who you are, what you do, or what's happening in your life, I think that just in general, that may just help out everyone just to sit there and be able to talk about certain things, because there's a lot of things that are built up and people don't want to talk about and I could see police officers having those sort of things build up too to maybe where they just don't agree with certain things so I mean that's just key yeah um so I mean I I, I want to close with one last point uh Lancherie, and it's something that we've spoken about and, and we spoke about off air here but I mean I think what we're coming to here is that and what we're learning um is that even with Black Lives Matter as an organization who we know is connected to democratic policies and, and giving money um, to candidates and uh, the boogeyman of George Soros, who is literally trying to destroy America uh, with every dollar he spends. Even within those groups, we can find things within their quote unquote agenda that are good for all of us, that we can Correct. all agree on, that are common sense measures. Uh, the one that has been setting people off though, Mm -hmm. And Lancherie, I'll let you kind of explain this a little bit better. Uh, the phrase defund the police. Mm -hmm. The phrase defund the police um, is, is, is very important because it, it, it becomes a polarizing political moment of, no, I support police officers, or no, get rid of police officers. And mm -hmm. I think the phrase defund the police is somewhere in the middle of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and within that middle, there, there are a lot of good things that can actually come of that. So, right. Lancherie, when, when you hear defund the police, uh, even as a lawyer, and you know, you got doing all that reading and understanding words, <laughs> what does that really mean and, 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 um, in from a policy standpoint and from what an individual will see on a daily basis in their neighborhood? Right. So when you um, hear defund police, I think you know, some people rightly so think, oh no, no more police, right? Who's gonna right. protect us? What's gonna happen? Who do I call, right? No 911, no services. And my understanding for most individuals um, when they say defund the police and it's coming from an organization, they're referring to an allocation of funds, right? So taking away some funding in order to use that funding toward the community, right? Using that funding toward serving the community versus policing the community. So frequently when you hear defund the police, that is the concept, that's the idea, is not to have law enforcement, right? That's not the concept, right? The concept is to take some of that money and use it for the people who need it, right? And in using some of that money for the people who need it and in providing some of those funds to the community, guess what? That will reduce the need for police officers, right? You won't need as many. You won't need to fund it as much, right? And so one of those examples of defunding the police that you've seen all over the news is Camden, New Jersey. I encourage everyone, look up what they did. 
look up their model and see. Because if you looked at the Camden, New Jersey protest, and this is what makes me think it's okay to defund the police, their police officers marched with them. During this time, their police officers are seen even more frequently in the community picking up trash, helping in the community. And I believe at this time, that's what the community wants. That's what the community needs. We want to see the police officers rallying around the community rather than rallying around each other to be against the community. It's time yeah. to abolish the blue wall. We don't want a blue wall anymore, right? We don't want a separation of us and them. We want to come together and make the entire community better. Yeah, and I, I think, I think, what I think I, I think we really should stop using the term defund because I think people think about that and they and they think dismantle and that's not what the the objective um, of any police reform is going to be. Listen, at the end of the day, we are trying to make police better at their job, help them and give them the support they need by right. also uh, making the community feel more safe. Um, so j just for anyone who's listening defunding the police in Cleveland and in most places isn't going to look like complete anarchy and right, like yeah. in, no. in Seattle and people burning down the precinct. That's not, not what's going to the wild, wild west. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, so I understand why defunding the police is something that, you know, most Republicans will never be able to get behind. But I think if you actually dug into what de quote unquote defunding means, and saying, well, yeah, we're going to give some money to the community. We're going to make sure police have these types of support systems. Um, we're going to put these things in place to make sure officers and individuals in the community are safe. That would be an easier conversation to have. And that needs to be the conversation we're having to make these federal right. changes, to make these policy changes, to, uh, be, to have a voice on these union contract negotiations with police officers. Right. We need to be having that conversation and not focusing on what I'll call the D word from for the rest of this episode. Jeff, you can you can kind of have the last word in this segment because we, we we could go on and on. Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> um, I just look at it as that the way that it all comes down to is that we need to have the conversations to educate people, educate people on what it means in defunding the police, educate people on educating people on just simple things of just understanding the whole concept of Black Lives Matter and that. Things aren't going to change and no, we're not going to have all lives matter until actually black lives matter because of the struggle there. And I think that a lot of people don't see that struggle. On top of it, I think that we need to take the time too, to educate those that are protecting us also. So there's a lot of things that revolve around education or not education, just educating people in my mind, just providing the information and actually willing to have the conversation. Yeah, um, you know, I, I think you hit it right on the head there. Uh, in particular, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of weeks talking to people about that. Um, and, you know, we talked to chairman about it. So I think it's, it's, it's really important that as we go forward, that not only do we understand that this moment right now is not something we can sit on the sidelines for. Um, this moment right now is not something we can just wait to go away. And this moment right now is not going to be something that somebody forgets in the next two, three years. Um, this is something that we're gonna to have to come to the table on. And we cannot focus on one word, the D word, 
mm-hmm. uh, to stop us from having that conversation. Uh, right. We can't focus on one phrase, Black Lives Matters, or one person in George right. Soros to allow us to stop from trying to educate ourselves, Jeff, and, and, and finding that common ground. So right. with that, um, I want to thank you, Lon Sharif, for stepping in. More we as Republicans are able to understand and educate ourselves and have the conversation, the better chance we'll have to engage with the community that we desperately need to engage with us. So once again, thank you for your time, Lon Sharif. Thanks for having um, and, me. Oh, no problem. RPCC on air episode 12? Is that right, Jeff? Is it 12? I want to say yes. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> they're, they're all coming together now. They're all starting yeah, to come yeah, together. Let's, let's so go with RPCC on air episode 12, the George Floyd episode. We'll be right back. How will 2020 census data be used? Where there are more people, there are more needs for public services. That's why the census is used by the government to inform funding decisions each year. But that's not all. It's also used by nonprofits to inform services, by businesses to create jobs, and even by students for school projects. Understanding how the population changes helps us shape communities across the country for the better. Shape your future. Start here. Visit 2020census.gov. This is RPCC On Air. And we're back, RPCC On Air. Say it with me, Jeff. Remote. Remote. And uh, this is the special edition George Floyd episode. Um, And with that being said, I I just want to take a moment before we even get into this segment um, and just really thank our guests, um, Lon Cherie and Chairman, for coming in and, uh, one, providing potential solutions and, you know, giving us the framework to kind of think about this issue. Jeff, don't you think they did a really good job of that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I think that there's a lot of things that were said that people just need to listen to. As of right now, it's the time to where you want to listen and then think. And then I, for me, I just want to educate myself as much as I possibly can before I start saying anything on these sort of certain topics. And I think that they gave us the opportunity to see that and see how you can actually sit there and voice your opinion in a positive way. Yeah, um, you know, I'll start with saying that, you know, we're the party of diversity and ideas. And I think in, you know, Lancherie's segment in particular, you may not agree with everything she said in particular, uh, in, um, in all, what, what I'll say is you may not agree with everything she said uh, as the right solution, but I think it's just important for us to be involved in the conversation. Of yeah, the, the conversation needs to happen. Exactly. No matter what, no matter what the views are, you're always going to have to sit there and talk about different ways of attacking this situation and taking it on to figure out what is the best way to go about it. Yeah, yeah. And then the second point you made there is about listening. Um, and that's what we're going to do with segment three here, which I guess we'll call this the minority report of the George Floyd episode. Uh, I, I want to take this segment and, you know, just have you listen to uh, some narratives. We got about 20 of them um, from different places within the party. And I want to say this again. These are people who are involved with the party. They are central committee people. They are uh, uh, finance members, they are uh, executive committee, they are people that work within the party. These are not stories of individuals that are much different from yourself. 
Um, the only difference between a lot of these narratives that you're going to hear is that these individuals happen to be uh, brown, uh, people of color, or black, however you want to say that. Um, and I think Chairman made a reference to this is that, you know, we're going to talk about kind of in this segment where that distrust with police officers kind of manifests itself within individuals. Um, and, and we'll hear it, 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 it can be for real reasons. Um, you know, police officers in this country are rooted um, in slave catchers. That, that, that those are one of the first police departments in this country. And for a lot of African-Americans and people of color, they feel like that hasn't changed so much. Um, and as we read these narratives, you'll be able to hear that fear and that uneasiness. So um, with that being said, uh, Jeff, uh, you got the first narrative, so I'll let you tell. Yeah. So this first narrative deals with someone that was moving into a new city in central Ohio. And upon arriving in the new city around 8 p.m., this person saw a local police officer approaching. In their mind, they thought that he was gonna turn around and stop them because the person was in a new town. They were slowly driving around trying to find their actual residence. And it's hard to find a new residence when you go to new places. I remember my first time in college trying to figure out where my apartment was and I was lost. Drove around the place six times. So yep. it happens. And this person had to sit there and prepare themselves both mentally and socially to be stopped by this officer. And when um, it came to it, she looked in her rearview mirror. The police officer turned around and proceeded to pull this person over. The thing that came to this person's mind immediately when they got pulled over was, why am I being stopped? Because they knew that they didn't break any laws and there was no reason for them to be stopped. The only thing that this person can think of when they were being pulled over was the fact that they were driving while being black. So when she sat there and gave the officer her license and her registration and answered the one question of what are you doing here, her or the explanation that happened was basically that this person was reporting to their city, well not reporting, moving into a new city for a job they were gonna start on Monday morning and they were looking for their apartment. They couldn't figure out where exactly they were going. The police officer took the documentation back to the car, checked the identity, checked for warrants, came back and told the person to have a good evening. And right then and there, the person knew that they were a victim of racial profiling. That's pretty um, much hits it on the head right there for you. It, it does, it does. Um, you know, one of the things that I don't think a lot of other communities deal with is um, having to verify why you are someplace. And for African-Americans, that feel like, feels like having to justify your existence. Um, and as an individual, as a human, I'm, I'm sure uh, all of us can um understand how that makes someone feel it makes them feel less less than um and it's it, it, it's a reality that a lot of african Americans and people of color have been stopped in similar situations and asked what are you doing here um another question that is often asked of african americans and we'll talk about this in the next narrative is 
why do you have this or why do you look this way? And to explain that, I'll, I'll read the next narrative. Um, this is from a young, a young person uh, growing up in central Ohio. Um, and it kind of starts like this. Growing up, there's an understanding that it does not take much more than being black to be pulled over by an officer. It makes us even more aware when police are around while doing daily activities. Uh, so with that being said, that is something that does happen with an African-American home. In the African-American home, we talk about it as having the talk with your young African-American. And what that talk basically entails is that you will be pulled over, you will be questioned, and the only way for you to remain safe is to comply with every rule. Because without complying with every rule, there's a higher possibility that you may fall victim. And I, before I continue with the narrative, I just want to make this clear to everyone. When you're an African-American in certain situations with police officers, any mistake can be deadly. Any mistake. Um, so your details, your documentation always has to be at the front of your mind and the way you conduct yourself. You cannot slip because if you can slip, you can become any more of the names that we won't name at this moment who have been in that situation um, and bad things have come at that. But continuing with this narrative, uh, this, this young person was sitting in the pastor's side on the way to a friend's house with two other friends who were also African-American as well. Uh, they noticed an officer ahead of them and they all looked at each other knowing what the possibilities could be. My friend who was driving was not speeding, was not breaking the law, but as we drove past officer who seemed to be parked looking for speeding violations, we noticed that the car was, began, was beginning to drive and follow us. Uh, as black men, we understood what could happen next. Again, making that point of when you're an African-American, you have to have these talks with your children. And this is what their, their thought process is when they're being full, pulled over. Uh, the car approached them uh, from behind, pulled them over, and for about 10 to 15 minutes, didn't even approach the car. And they had their flashing lights on and you know, guns at attention. First thing they said to them was, do you know why we pulled you over? The second thing they said was, nice car, where'd you get it? This was not in the tone of genuine interest, but rather in the tone and more direct tone making it seem to seem like the owner of the car that he wasn't driving wasn't his car. Uh, at, in the end of this situation, they all gave the officers their ID. They complied with everything that was happening. Uh, officers went back to the car and said, all good. Uh, and, you know, the end of this narrative is kind of what I'm saying. This is a common thing in the Black community of where they are pulled over um, at a higher rate for maybe not doing anything. And the anxiety that comes over a young person or anyone uh, driving a too nice of a car in the wrong neighborhood, um, having to verify what they're doing there is something that we as Republicans need to be sensitive to. And again, this isn't data, this isn't statistics. These are real feelings of people that, again, we know. We know them to be upstanding citizens and do the right things. Um, and even they are kind of at grips and at the victim of some of the things that have happened to them. Uh, I, I, you know what Jeff Wild would compare it to? It's like PTSD. We talk about our military all the time. Yeah. Uh, when you see all these images, 
um, on in the media in our history books of African Americans being treated differently under the law, you begin to have a cultural uh, PTSD. So anytime you engage with an officer, you feel that, um, and I don't think a lot of other Americans have to feel that. Now you might not want to get pulled over. You might say, "What is he stopping me for?" But the majority of people who get pulled over who happen to be Caucasian don't feel like them behaving in the wrong way, them making any sudden movements could result in them not going home that night and not, not going to jail, but mm-hmm. literally not going home ever again. Um, and, 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 you know, that story kind of puts it all in perspective for us. Jeff? It's, it's interesting to see these sort of things happen. Um, I mean, I myself have actually been in an experience like this, surprisingly, to where... Mm-hmm. I was driving with one of my friends from college. He's African-American. We were just coming home from the wreck. Just got done hooping. Having a great time. Having a conversation. Hit a stop sign. Stop. Continue to move. All of a sudden, we get pulled over. Then we're just like, what is going on right now? And we both look at each other. and He drove an older Buick that was beat up, yes. But at the same time, there was no reason to pull him over. Guys, Cops come, pull us out of the car, start searching all over the car, everything like that. And it was like, oh, yeah, you know, we just, you know, thought that you may have or thought you had drugs on you or something or yada, yada, yada. And what are you guys driving around here in this car for and all this other stuff? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, our basketball shoes are right there. We're sweaty. We just came from the wreck. Right. And they basically, like, searched every single part of the car just because it was an older, banged-up car. So... And Jeff, before we get on, I know the next narrative involves two friends um, leaving a, a, a gathering of sorts, but do you think the reaction was because your friend was Black, or do you feel like it was just because of the car? I think it was both. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, it, I think it was both. Yeah. I don't know why. And I think for the most part, it was because my friend was black, but at the same time, though, I think that it played into it a bit. And they thought that coming up to the cartoon, seeing like pieces of the carpet were ripped and stuff like that, that we were hiding stuff in it or something of the sort. But it was just an older car that's been through its time. I mean, we've all had those first cars. I can tell you right now that my first car I had was 800 bucks. And if you saw me driving this thing around, you'd be like, what is going on? Yeah. Yeah, I just think that at the same time, though, like that shouldn't matter. And I think that it came down to the sole fact that he was just a black kid driving around at Bowling Green. There we go. There we go. Go ahead, Jeff, with uh, your last narrative. So this is I'll start it off here. This deals with um, someone that was uh, basically in their last semester of college and they went out with their friends one night. They ended up going to a house party in Tremont and they spent time with the friends hanging out and drinking. They were all over 21, not doing anything illegal. After a while, the one friend said, or after a while, the group of friends realized that they were, were too much intoxicated to drive home. So they sat there and they thought that they'd be the responsible ones to start walking home. Well, it was late and there were a couple of other people on the streets and they were just walking about a block behind two white guys when a cop car rolled up on them and shined their bright lights and kind of just was looking at them. 
Um, one of the officers asked what they were doing and they basically just responded that they were walking home. And his response to them was, you're not now, you're coming with us. So both of them were stunned. Uh, they asked the cops what had they done wrong and what was the reasoning for this, basically. They just didn't have a clue. They were kind of just like, yo, we're trying to be responsible here. I mean, I would thank people that would rather drive home than risk, or not rather drive home. I would thank people that would rather walk home than drive right. and risk other people's lives. Right. That's kind of like how I see it, though. So. As he asked the question, he already knew what was going to happen. So at this point, my friend told his friend told him not to say anything, and that they both knew that the this situation can turn out to be worse. They kept both of their mouths shut. They didn't say anything. They assumed that they were getting arrested for being drunk in public, which is not a crime in itself. And at that time, they didn't know. So that was something to take into two. So they ended up spending the night in jail, assuming that they would be released about or be released after some time. But then mid-morning the next day, we found that they were still incarcerated. And the one gentleman that was basically in jail overnight for no reason wanted to ask the correction officer when they would get out. He told them to hold uh, tight while they check. When he came back, he had something that reminded me of a movie, or basically this whole scene reminded our the person that was in this situation of a movie. And it was my cousin Vinny. He said that you're not in here for public intoxication in public intoxication. You're in here for Grand Theft Auto. After a couple of days, I was the person was released with no charges. The person talked to the detectives when they let him out, and he said that they received a call that two guys stole the truck. The person that was arrested and their friend were in the area and were well, they were in the area where the cops happened to be. So the cops just assumed, hey, let's pick these guys up. They're probably the people that stole the car. A ton of questions floated in the person's head and why we would walk or why would we be walking if we stole the car or stole the truck? And why didn't they at least ask the two white dudes who were in front of us? So the cops weren't doing their job, basically. They were just kind of racial profiling, like we said. They kind of just jumped to conclusions. They saw what was going on here and they thought, hey, you know, I mean, what, what was going through this person's mind? Worst case scenario that these people that we end up throwing in jail for a night are maybe not the people that stole the truck, but maybe have a warrant out or something of the sort is their mindset. So I think that that's kind of a situation in my mind. But and the harsh reality in it all is that what happened in this situation was that a cop sat there and saw two brown people walking around and thought, hey, there's the people that I need to pick up. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think it's very important because in a lot of conservative conversations that I've seen around um, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, this whole George Floyd, Floyd thing, um, people always say, 
you know, well, African-Americans, of course they get shot or, or hurt in more interactions with police officers because they have more interactions with police officers and people often refer to FBI statistics about crime because black people commit more crime. So they're going to have more interaction. Um, and I think, you know, when we take that into consideration of like our last narrative, uh, you don't necessarily have to commit a crime because cops have these statistics too. You don't necessarily have to co commit a crime to fit the description. Um, I can tell you that I fit the description for a lot of things that happen in Cleveland um, as a 5'11", between six foot blank number, African-American man wearing a blue shirt. Like these are the type of things that happen. And yes, in Cleveland, police officers are doing their best um, to kind of change that and make sure that racial profiling doesn't happen as much. Uh, but it is a problem. I mean, we saw it with stop and frisk in New York, uh, where that was disproportionately affecting African-Americans. So I think, you know, that last narrative kind of brings to the point of what does racial profiling really look like and how does it exist? Um, lastly, I guess in this segment, I will share my story that I've talked about briefly here, but there's an element that I didn't talk about. Most of you guys know I worked for A American for Prosperity. Um, a lot of our work was about grassroots contact. Um, I, I, I've had several interactions with police officers, so much to the point where I would take selfies because people were trying to figure out why I was in that neighborhood and the police officers would pull up and I would give my documentation, again, justifying my existence and reason for being there. Um, one particular occasion, I was knocking on a door in, in a suburb that I won't name, and something felt weird about this door um, because no one came and answered, but I could clearly see there were people peeping out the window. My job is to stand there until they get to the door. So I'm standing there. And as I'm standing there, I hear cop cars pull up behind me. Um, again, I'm in my bright green Americans for Prosperity shirt um, and, my, and my short khakis that I wear everywhere. And when I turn around, I see three cop cars and six officers uh, standing behind me. And I noticed that two of the officers have their hands on their gun. Um, sorry. That, that, for African-Americans, that's a really scary situation to be in, where you're looking at officers with their hands on their gun. Um, one of the officers yells to me, hey, yes, uh, 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 come here, and we want to talk to you. And I say, okay. As I am approaching the officers, they then tell me we need to see some identification. And I'm, I'm working for AFP, so I'm like, no problem, sir. So as I reach into my back pocket to get my wallet, which has my business card and my ID into it, two officers pull their guns out. And now they're pointed at me. And I had to stop in that moment because I knew if I were to continue to reach for my wallet and my identification as they had asked me to do, I could be another hashtag. I could be another George Floyd. I can be another of the countless names that I won't quote right now because it kind of hurts to think that that could have been Colin Jackson. So I walked towards the officers very slowly with my hands up. Um, and there was a black officer there. And the black officer 
asked me to calm down. I'm shaking. I'm wanting to cry. I'm out here talking about economic freedom and fighting for Republican values and trying to do the right thing in this moment. And in that moment, I'm just another black guy who could have been reaching for a weapon. The end of the incident ends with me shaking at my core, sitting down on a curb with everything in my bag spread out to make sure that I'm not someone who's been stealing things from this affluent neighborhood in Cuyahoga County. Um, I could have died that day, Jeff. I, I, I could be here not doing this podcast right now. And I tell that story, which is hard for me to tell. I don't share that last element of it. Of You know, I was looking down the barrel of two police officers' guns to tell you that this PTSD and this anxiety, this need to say Black Lives Matter verbally doesn't come from a place of Black supremacy, but more of a place of longing for equality or equal treatment under the law, under this constitution that we have. Um, and I, I, I guess that I will kind of end this part of this episode and this episode as a whole by using a term that is often used by conservatives who don't want to deal with the issue of race, um, by even white liberals who don't want to deal with the issue of race. Um, all lives can't matter until Black Lives Matters too. Uh, all people can't be protected under the law until black, black people are protected under the law as well. And in my heart of hearts, I know most Americans agree with that statement. Um, I know most conservatives agree with that statement. But what I charge every person who can hear my voice to do right now is no matter what you might feel, listen, be willing to learn. You don't gotta agree with everything that Black Lives Matter says. You don't have to agree with everything that every black person says, and that doesn't make you a racist. But what we have to do is get to the point of understanding and understanding that there are issues in our country and that until we face them head on, until we're all able to say, verbally that black lives do matter we're never going to fix, fix these issues and um my hope is that all of you um through the our conversations with chairman frost lingerie the narrative that we read today have a better understanding of what the african-american community is going through right now and understanding of where your role is and that doesn't mean everybody has to go put on a black lives matter shirt but you should at least be able to say it so I think that's what we'll do right now. Jeff, if you'll jump, join me in saying um, the phrase of the moment right now. Let's say it, Black Lives Matter on three. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Let's say it, man. Um, one, two, three. Black, Black Lives, Lives Matter. Thank you all for listening to um, – our special edition of RPCC on air. Say it with me, Jeff. Remote. Remote.
this has been the George Floyd episode. I hope you guys all learned something and uh, we'll see you back next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.